At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 414th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.com. Dot org for more information. That's seeds to 33444 or visit seedsavinghacked.org. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is challenging the monoculture of our farming system. We're talking with Leah Penniman about liberating the land. Leah is a black Creole farmer who has been tending the soil for 20 years and organizing for an anti-racist food system for over 15. She currently serves as founding co-executive director of Soulfire Farm in Grafton, New York, a people of color-led project that works to dismantle racism in the food system. Through Soulfire Farm's innovative programs, such as the Black Latinx Farmers Immersion, a sliding scale farm share CSA and youth food justice leadership trainings. She is part of a global network of farmers working to increase farmland stewardship by people of color, restore Afro indigenous farming practices and promote equality in food access. Leah has been recognized by the Soros Equity Fellowship, by NYS Health Emerging Innovator Awards and by Fulbright Distinguished. If that is not enough, she is the author of Farming While Black, published by our friends at Chelsea Green Publishing. Welcome to the show today, Leah. Are you ready to rock? Yes. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? For sure. Yeah. We as human beings are so much more complex than our bios. And I am a person who's passionately in love with the soil, with the earth, and with our human community. And I found that out when I first started farming at age 16 at the food project outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And from that 
moment of seeing the miracle of putting a seed into the earth and pulling out a carrot mm. and chopping it up to feed the community, I was totally hooked on farming. And I've been doing that ever since. Wow. So you started early and it's been at least 20 years doing that. Yeah, I'm a little old. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm a little old. You're young. So we're kind of opening the door and I, I referenced it in my intro where we're challenging the monoculture of farming. And generally, when in farming, when we talk about monoculture, we're talking about a single crop on a property. That's not what you mean by that, is it? I mean, that's part of what I mean, because we definitely grow Afro-Indigenous polycultures all over our farm where plants are intermingled. But, you know, when I love your play on words, because I think that there's a really dangerous narrative going on right now in the so-called good food or sustainable farming movement, that all of these innovative practices that we will use to halt climate chaos and feed the community are ahistorical or European. Mm -hmm. And that was certainly what I had come to believe as a teen. You know, I went to all the farming conferences and read all the books and started to wonder if I was a race trader and if I really belonged in the movement because all of the authors and presenters were white. And so part of Farming While Black and part of the work of Soul Fire Farm is really to uncover the true history. I mean, to understand that everything from raised beds to vermicomposting, everything from, you know, co-ops to work parties, that those have roots in African tradition. And further, that actually most of the people growing our food are black and brown folks in this country, well over 85%, but just aren't given the recognition that they're farmers by the government and by society as a whole. And so we're looking to really correct that injustice and reclaim you know, our dignified place on the land as, as people of color who farm. Excellent. I love that you're diving full on into this because you're right, it's a project that needs to be handled, taken on changed. So good for you. Thank you. So tell me about Soul Fire Farm. Sure. Soul Fire Farm is a community project that's led by black and brown farmers way up in the mountains of Petersburg, New York. Uh, we're on 72 acres and this land we believe chose us in 2006 to do this work of feeding the community and providing a learning space for farmers of color who are looking to make a living doing this work. So there are nine of us on the team, and we do three main things, all aimed at uprooting racism in the food system. The first and most important thing we do is we cultivate around five acres in vegetables, fruits, eggs, meat, and box up all of that food that's grown in the, the healthiest way possible and make it available to those who need it most. So refugees, immigrants, folks impacted by mass incarceration. So everything's at an affordable price, and it's brought right to people's doorsteps in our community. And then the second thing we do is we offer a whole bunch of training programs in farming, business planning, and the other skills you need to make a life on land. And those programs center the needs and cultures of Black, Latinx, and Indigenous folks. And then the third, the third thing that I spend a lot of my time on is land reparations. You know, folks may not know that Right now in this country, around 98% of the farmland is controlled by white people, which is higher than it's wow. been since 1910. It's, it's really, really skewed. And this is because of a legacy of stolen land from indigenous people and, and kicking black folks off their farms in the South. Mm -hmm. And so we're working to with government and also with private individuals to try to get land and resources returned to those from whom it was stolen. Wow. And how are you going about that? 
Well, a few different ways. In the Northeast, we're actually forming a land trust. That's a collaboration between some Northeast indigenous communities as well as the farming community. Um, and that land trust will be able to receive land donations and then give out leases or just turn over the title to indigenous tribal communities and to black farmers. And so we've been working really hard on the legal structure. We're about to hire a coordinator for that and we're building a board. That's our local strategy. Nationally, there's some really exciting policy work going on through the Heal Food Alliance and through the Movement for Black Lives, where they're trying to, you know, change the law so that we can actually, you know, get our lands back and get reparations, monetary reparations for the unpaid labor of our ancestors. Wow. Going back hundreds of years. We don't talk about reparations really openly as a society, but I think it's so important. You know, one of my mentors, uh, Ed Whitfield, who is a community cooperative activist and elder, he explained it so well. He said, imagine if your neighbor stole your cow. And a couple weeks later, that neighbor came over to apologize, realizing that it was wrong to steal your cow. And they just, I'm sorry. I, I knew it was wrong. I didn't mean to do it. I knew it hurt you. I'm going to make it up to you, your neighbor says. You know, every week for the rest of this cow's life, I'm going to bring you half a pound of butter. What would your response be? Uh, bring me the cow back? Exactly. You know, so <laughs> if you look at trillions of dollars of stolen labor from enslaved Africans, if you and, and you look at the impact of redlining and the USDA discrimination and, and the subsequent land loss, you know, there's a whole history that we can unpack there. It's not that we want a scholarship here and there or a little bit of resources. We really need the means of production. We need the cow. We need the lands. We need the education so that we can build self-sustaining, self-sufficient communities. So that's the idea of reparations. It's not just going back for the sake of going back, but it's understanding that we are not all on a level playing field because the resource distribution is skewed. Significantly skewed. How are you seeing that skewing? Well, I mentioned that the land is disproportionately in the hands of white folks. Mm -hmm. So is the power Right now in this nation, around 85% of our food is grown by people who identify as Latinx and Hispanic, many of whom come to us through the H-2A program, which is a guest worker program, a special kind of contract visa. Mm -hmm. Yet only about 2% of farms are managed by Latinx and Hispanic people. So there's a huge disparity in terms of who calls the shots in the food system. And this does, this does not just impact farmers. You know, this also impacts consumers. If you are a white person, you are four times more likely to have a supermarket in your neighborhood than if you're a black person. Isn't that amazing? This, isn't it? And yeah. that segregation, which we call food apartheid, you know, where depending on your zip code, it determines your access to good food has all kinds of health implications. You know, people of color are more likely to have diabetes, heart disease, obesity, poor eyesight, all of these diet related illnesses, not because we don't want to eat good food, but because it's just simply not affordable or available in the places we live. So it's, it's in the DNA of the food system, these disparities. Right. And you're doing a lot to fix that. And I, you know, I just want to give you a virtual five. I want oh, to give thanks. you a virtual high five, <laughs> you bet. Because, you know, you're, you're touching on a subject in this country that's often not talked about. So yay for you. Thank you. Your book, Farming While Black, tell us about it. Oh, I will say I did not know that I would love to write so much. I'm a reluctant writer. You know, it was I was blogging for our organization, writing our monthly newsletter. And Yes Magazine got interested and asked me to write some articles. And then from there, Chelsea Green saw my articles and said, hey, will you write a book? So I was putting them off for a long time. But of course, once I sat down to write this, it just flowed right through. I mean, we've dedicated our whole lifetimes 
to learning this knowledge about the way our ancestors have contributed to healthy, sustainable agriculture and learning how to set up a cooperative farm that can manage itself financially and that can provide all this resource for community. And so, you know, to put that all down on paper and be able to share it with community so that we don't have to gatekeep the knowledge, you know, because we have a waiting list two years long for our programs. And that's been the only way to this point that folks have been able to access this curriculum and information. So finally, the book is out. I'm just excited to see what type of projects it catalyzes and new understandings it catalyzes, you know, in, in, in the readers and in the communities that we all touch. Mm -hmm. So your book is a, a step-by-step guide to, you know, everything that has to do with land. (laughs) (laughs) They wouldn't give me as many pages as I wanted, but the idea with Farming Wild Black is that it's a practical guide to liberation on land. And so there's everything from how to find land how to communicate with the spirits of the land to make sure that you're all in sync and connected, Mm -hmm. Uh, seed keeping, crop planning, running youth programs, all the things, business marketing, all of that is, is in the book. And, you know, while it, there's only so much that you can fit in a chapter on business planning, there's a lot of resources in there for more information and templates. So you can use it as a springboard for deeper learning. Yeah. That is so needed what you are working on. So thank you once again for doing that. Oh, well, thank you for appreciating it. I know it's hard to keep a sometimes a lively and upbeat tone when we talk about these really serious issues, but I am honestly just so encouraged and hopeful mm-hmm. because I think this generation is the one that is going to start to turn the food system around. Yeah, I'm seeing that. You know, I'm seeing a lot of young people show up wanting to be farmers of all races and they're quite engaged. So, you know, it's it's magical what's going on, really. I agree. So, what kind of people are you seeing in your programs? Who, In fact, let me ask you this a little bit differently. You've been doing this for a while now. There's one person that showed up over the past five years or so that when they showed up, it's like for you a huge, oh my God, this is the reason I'm doing this. Tell me about that person. <laughs> you know, the thing is, Greg, that there are so many people like that. Um, nice. But I I will mention maybe one or two of them. But so someone that is deeply inspiring to me is Viviana Moreno. And by extension, her whole co-op, she's part of the Caratumbo Cooperative Farm in Chicago with Ireri and Hasnin and, and some other folks. But she showed up just as a visionary. She said, I am here to glean all these farming skills because I have a clear vision of creating a worker-owned cooperative for immigrants in my community. Because folks may or may not know that if you are undocumented in the United States, it's very difficult. It's illegal to get a job, but it's actually not illegal to own your own business. And so worker-owned co-ops can be this way of gaining economic independence without government sanction through documents. So she took all these things she learned and literally did it, like implemented this co-op and then came back for our advanced training program and then came back the next year to learn our through our carpentry program so that she could build structures on her farm. And that is so inspiring to me, just people who are deeply rooted and committed in their communities and able to glean the skills that they need and just make something happen. Mm -hmm. So she's my superhero. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful when people show up, learn from you and take it out and, you know, perhaps do greater work than you're doing? Yeah, that's the whole point. You know, a lot of folks would be like, well, what's next for Soulfire? Like, how are you expanding? And, you know, while there's a little bit of growth we need to do to catch up to ourselves in terms of just infrastructure and capacity, we don't really have a franchise vision or like some Soulfire empire vision. We think of ourselves more like the mycelium in the forest that connect the trees and share nutrients and resources and help other trees grow. And so for us, the big victory is when 
our comrade farms are doing amazing things for their communities and we can support them. We don't need to control that or own it in any way. So was there a moment in the past few years that was just literally life-changing for you? Well, Greg, just like there are so many people who inspire me, I think we have life-changing moments at least once a month. Uh, But something that happened just maybe 10 days ago here on the land was that some dear friends uh, reached out and asked if it would be okay to spread the ashes of their deceased friend here on the land. And this is a, the person who passed away was someone who took her own life Mm. in her 20s. Mm. It's a young person. So it was very, very devastating and disrupting to the whole community. But she felt connected here at Soul Fire and the whole community does. And the fact that they chose this land as a place to put the ashes of, you know, their dearly beloved, their, their lost ones says so much about what land can do for us. I think that, you know, certainly owning land, having access to land is a means to provide sustenance, like quite literally the food that sustains us and keeps us alive and our water and our fresh air. But there's also an aspect of empowerment and belonging that comes with the land too. To have a place where you can lay the ashes of your friend or where you can gather to organize around issues that are important to you, like mass incarceration and feel safe and protected from harm. You know, a place where you know that that you belong and that you're welcome and you don't have to only show up with just part of yourself. So I think a huge life-changing sort of series of events that happens at Soul Fire is when I see people experience that healing and meaning and it reinvigorates me, even though this work is super hard and the hours are so long. Mm-hmm to just keep going and keep providing that resource for people who mean so much to me. Yeah. Wow. That's quite a sweet story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So you're growing food as well. What kind of food do you grow and where does it go? (laughs) That is a great question. We grow over a hundred different varieties of vegetables, fruits, and herbs, as well as raise chickens on pasture for meat and eggs. And we focus on Afro-Indigenous varieties the Gilo eggplant, the Moya mensing tomato, different types of amaranth, because we want to keep that genetic heritage alive that our ancestors worked so hard to create and build healthy diets around our cultural foods, you know, and and sort of uproot that myth that you have to eat, quote, white people food in order to be healthy. You know, we can eat our own foods with our delicious spices. And that's what we provide to our community. It is all boxed up every Wednesday into about 100 boxes and goes through Schenectady, Albany, and Troy, the capital district of New York State. Uh-huh. And it's pretty even split between middle income and low income folks because we do a sliding scale. So folks who have more money pay more and folks who have less money pay less and it evens out so the farmer still gets a living wage. Um, wow. Yeah, we share our food in that way. So that that kind of a program is working in your area. And it's something that you teach about? It absolutely is. Because we believe that it's incumbent upon all of us to share what we have and to make that resource available so that food is a basic human right and not a privilege reserved for the few. So we created a manual uh, earlier this year called Sowing the Seeds of Food Justice. And it's a guide for farmers who want to access low-income markets without sacrificing their bottom line. And it gives step-by-step to how to set up a sliding scale and also how to access certain governmental funds and programs that can supplement what community members are able to pay. Wow. Where does one find that at? You can find it on our website at soulfirefarm.org on the publications page. Wow. And you just make it available for free for people to come and learn. Of course. Of (laughs) course. I believe that knowledge should absolutely be free. Yeah. Big time. Big time. Wow. You are just doing some really awesome stuff there. 
Oh, thank you. That's so kind of you. Yeah, you bet. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. Well, we fail all the time. And that's very important to talk about, because I think sometimes we're searching so much for heroes and leaders and magic that that we imagine that our flawed selves can't do the same thing. And of course, anyone with enough grit and determination can do something like soul fire. But my, my failure story relates to grit. It was, it was our, one of our earliest failures. We had just purchased the land, which we were able to save for and buy out of pocket off of my teacher's salary after about a decade of saving. And we thought we were good. Like we got this land. It was really inexpensive. And in our naive early 20s, did not realize how much everything else would cost, you know, putting in a foundation and a road and septic and electric. And, you know, this was just a forest and an Mm -hmm. overgrown field. So we quite literally had to dig most of our foundation for our home with shovels through hard pan clay, through boulders, you know, because our undersized tractor couldn't handle it. And we were almost done with this foundation. It took us months. And had this moment where we were about ready to celebrate a victory. And Jonah looks at me and he's like, I feel like I remember something from earth science in middle school that, you know, there's a difference between solar cells and magnetic cells. And we were, of course, making a passive solar house. So it needed to be perfect on solar cells. Uh-huh. He's like, I don't even think we had cell phones at that point. So we had to like go home and look it up. And of course, we had dug the foundation like 13 degrees off of where it needed to be. And we needed to redig. We needed to reorient oh the work that we had done. And I remember being in that hole, like bloody blisters and crying. And Jonah's like, do you want to quit? And I said, I don't want to quit. Do you want to quit? He's like, I'll never quit. And we didn't. We fixed the foundation. We built the house. And that was the first of dozens of failures. But I think that it underscores what's so important important about this work is you just got to stick with it. Like no one promised us that life was going to be easy or that changing the food system was going to be easy. It's going to take bloody blisters and tears and do-overs. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, on a call last night for our monthly seed chat and we were talking about how do we get things done and really what Bill and I determined was we just don't give up. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Joan and I are both pretty stubborn, which means sometimes we get in ridiculous arguments, but it also means that we can really get some stuff done. Exactly. So what do you consider your biggest success? I mean, maybe this is a little bit selfish and personal because I could tell you about how many people we fed and how many folks have gone through our training programs and that they're doing all these amazing things. And all of that is absolutely true. But my biggest successes in some ways are my small ones. It's our children, Nishima and Emmett, who are now almost 16 and 13 and a half grew up on this farm. Mm-hmm. And because it's been their whole life and they don't really understand how weird and different their life is, they don't, <laughs> right? they don't realize what they know. So my daughter, for example, was, you know, installing the roof decking on this addition that we're building over the summer. So she's up on the roof with her tool belt and her nail gun, you know, calling down measurements to the person who's cutting and handing things up to her. And I'm just looking at my, young teen daughter being so incredible with her carpentry skills, basically building, you know, building habitat for people. And it's casual. I'm like, do you know how amazing this is? She's like, I'm just working, just paying me minimum wage, you know, so I'm just doing my job. Or my son leading tours of the farm. And he imagines that he doesn't know anything about farming. But then I listened to him talking about all the heritage breeds of chickens we have and the history that goes back 9,000 years between African people 
and gallinaceous birds and why you need the biodiversity to, you know, have more resilience if there's an outbreak of disease and explaining all these things super casual. And I'm like, do you know how amazing you are? He's like, I'm just saying obvious things, you know? And so <laughs> right? just seeing my children and by extension, all the children who come through and are, are raised up as mm-hmm. part of this farm community and just these incredible practical life skills they have, I consider our biggest success, like training wow. up that next generation. Wow. So when you were sharing that, I was sitting here getting chills and all my listeners know I'm always looking for Epic and being able to share with your, your children and have them get it to that level. That's huge. That is a legacy that you're leaving behind. I appreciate you recognizing that. I don't think they know it. (laughs) They're like, I'll never be a farmer. It's way too much work, but there's a shift that's happening. And I, and I do think they'll, they'll find their way back to land in time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Good for you. So Actually, before we go on to the next one, you've you told the story about how you bought your farm. And can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because that in itself is epic. We were looking for land that was affordable and that was close to the community who asked us to create the farm. The folks, our neighbors in Albany and Troy. So mm-hmm. this parcel came up and because it's landlocked and we had to negotiate an easement just to even access the property, it was super inexpensive. Mm. But more importantly, you know, from the very first moment that I stepped onto this land with my partner, Jonah, we felt, you know, quite literally like the earth was reaching out these invisible tendrils of belonging and wrapping them around our ankles. It was just so right. And in our spirituality, we use a divination tool to confirm when we think that some element of nature or some element of the divine is trying to give us a message. We we confirm that. And sure enough, the lands was saying, absolutely, like, my destiny is to be soul fire. My destiny is to have you all here taking care of me and me taking care of you. Mm-hmm. So with the consent of the earth herself, you know, we signed those papers and, and committed our lives to this place. Wow. And you've been there how long? We purchased the property in 2006. It took us four years to build human habitat. So we mm-hmm. moved out here in 2010. Wow. So you've been living on the property for eight years. We have, yes. And doing these great projects and awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. (laughs) Thank you for asking. So what drives you? I mean, besides just stubbornness and grit, I would say that what drives me are the moments when I see that this work really matters because it's not easy work. I'm always joking with Jonah that I should just, you know, go be a teller at a post office or something and my life would be simpler. And, and I'm sure the people who work in post offices are like, you don't actually know what my life is like. So forgive me. You know, but what drives me are folks like Keisha Cameron. She's a graduate of our, let's see, our program two years ago. And she lives outside of Atlanta, Georgia with her children and raises organic livestock. And when she came up to our farm, she was totally ready to quit. I mean, it's really difficult to make a living It can be discouraging as a black farmer when your neighbors are hostile to you. Mm -hmm. But she was so reinvigorated by her time at Soulfire. I mean, she said when we were killing chickens together, she's like, I feel like I'm doing for the first time something that I've done a hundred times and went back to her community outside of Atlanta and started a program modeled after Soulfire where she's training black farmers in sustainable and regenerative methods and, and is recommitted to that life. And so just seeing that, you know, Keisha and others like her, that it's worth it for them is what keeps me going. Nice. And a, a book? Do you have a book you can recommend? Oh my goodness. It's so hard to pick one book, but I would say 
my Bible right now is Breeding Sweetgrass by Susan Wall Kimmerer. It's incredible. It combines the science and the indigenous ways of knowing of plants into this beautiful, melodic, poetic story. And everyone needs to read it three times. And tell us the name of it again. Sure. The book is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Nice. Sounds like a fun one to read. It's great. You'll love it. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Oh, that there are so many right answers. You know, I think it's up to each of us to find the intersection of what the world needs and what makes us come alive, because the world really needs people who have come alive. Oh, there's an understatement. (laughs) We all need to come alive, especially around our food. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Leah. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I want you to tell us about some of your programs and how, if one of our listeners is inspired, they can reach out to you and what kind of programs do you have and how do they attend? Oh, we'd love to have your listeners get involved. You can find out about all of our programs on our website, which is www.soulfirefarm.org. We have monthly community volunteer days, remote volunteer opportunities, training programs you can apply for. And everyone is encouraged to check out our Take Action page because it has easy steps that anyone can do to help create a more racially just and healthy food system. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, too. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash soul fire farm. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and every place that you find podcasts. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Claiming your inner urban farmer is easy. Grow food, share it, and name your farm. Then let the world know you're an urban farmer while supporting our podcast. Pick up your urban farmer bling, hats, and t-shirts at imanurbanfarmer.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule, and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.